And inevitably, the day came when there was actually a wolf, and he needed help, and no one believed him because he was the kind of kid who could not be trusted. Which one is more compelling, a command of two words, don't lie, or a story that shows you a lesson? Probably the story, right? Or I could use Greek mythology. I could tell you, be cautious, right? It's supposed to like snow rain tomorrow, so I don't even know what that looks like, but apparently both will happen simultaneously. So that's just the weather we're going to have. And as you're driving around on the roads, and apparently there's just not going to be any sun for the next four months. So as you're driving on these dark, snowy, rainy roads, I can tell you, use caution. And you would say, for sure. And then by the time you pulled out of your driveway, you probably wouldn't remember. Or I could tell you the story of Icarus. If you're familiar with Icarus, Greek mythology, it's this kid and his dad who are trapped on an island. And they're able to fashion these wings, and they glue animal feathers, or bird feathers, I guess, bird feathers on the wings. Animals don't have feathers, so that would not make sense. They, bird feathers on these wings, and they fly off the island. They escape. But Icarus is so pumped that he can fly because no human has ever flown that he flies too close to the sun. And the sun gives light, but it also gives heat, melts his wings, he crashes to his death and dies. Pretty sad story. Icarus did not use caution. I could tell you, be cautious. Two words, you'll forget. Or I could tell you a story. Stories are powerful. And in this essay, what C.S. Lewis said is stories allow us to steal past those watchful dragons of the human heart. Our hearts naturally resist new ideas. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like being told how to live. We don't like new things. We think we've got it all figured out. And if I come to you and I tell you how to live, you'll probably reject it. But if I can tell you a really good story, and in that story, there's a lesson that kind of matches what I want to tell you, that, actually, that might capture your heart. And I might be able to win you. Our hearts are shaped by the things that we see, the things that we hear, the things that we do. So today, the big idea is very simple. Uh, you cannot outrun your heart. You can't outrun your heart. So it's a one-point sermon, so we shouldn't be here that long. Psalm 101, starting in verse 1. This is God's word. I will sing of the steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Four short verses, right? If you know the whole psalm, it goes to eight, but we're only going to cover the first four. In, these, in this psalm, we have David speaking about the kind of man he wants to be. And he sets some tremendous goals, right? If, if you look at the language of the text, I will think of God's of, of God's ways, right? He's, he's going to sing of the steadfast love and justice. I will ponder the way that is blameless. There's a particular way that he's going to think. He's not going to look at anything worthless, verse 3. Verse 4, I, I will know nothing of, of doing evil. A perverse heart will be far from me. It's not just that I won't even recognize evil. It's that it will be so far from me. I'm the kind of person who does know evil that I wouldn't even recognize it if I saw it. David is setting an incredibly high standard for himself. The question is, does he live up to it? 
Right? In, in this passage, I think we see aspirational goals. There's a difference between aspirational goals and what I call tempered goals. Aspirational goals are the, the things that I want to do. It's a target I want to reach, but it's a little bit vague or it's so out there that I might not ever actually get there. That's an aspirational goal. A tempered goal is very objective. It's a target, and there's steps to reach that target. So we, we use language like this all the time. So when we talk about like going on a diet, for example, we will say, my plan, eat no junk food ever again. I'm done. Anything with sugar in it, I will not consume. And it's, that's clear, but that's an aspirational goal. It is pretty hard to achieve that goal. Basically, everything has sugar in it. If you don't have sugar, your, your body can't turn it into glucose, and you actually, like, can't function. So that goal, it's lofty, it's out there, it directs your steps, but you might never get there. What people then try to do to make a more tempered goal is they might say something like, I'm going to consume under 2,000 calories a day. That's achievable. It's objective. There's steps to get there. Or we can talk about school. Uh, people... Right, you just pass through, or hopefully you pass through midterms if you're in school. Maybe not. I don't hear a lot of come ons, amens. So apparently a lot of you failed, those of you who are in school. But if you wanted to pass, what you would probably do is you would study. And when I was in my undergrad, I would experience this all the time. I would talk to people, and they're like, my goal is to study every day. That is a textbook aspirational goal. I'm like, it, what is your game plan for achieving that goal? Is that realistic? Do you do schoolwork every single day? I don't think anyone does, so I, I don't know how you're going to do that. No, that's my goal. I know what I'm about. Aspirational. A more tempered goal would be I, I'm going to join a study group. Me and my friend are going to meet every Monday night, and, and that's when we study to prepare for this midterm or to prepare for this final. We often use language that is aspirational. I don't think it's a bad thing. It's, it's a target. It's something we're aiming at. And David in Psalm 101 is using aspirational language. His goal is to be the kind of man who sings of God's character, who ponders his ways, who sets nothing worthless before his eyes, who would not even recognize evil because it's so far from him. And as you listen to that description, that's a crazy high standard. And the question, of course, is, does David actually get there? Well... We have an Old Testament. We have First and Second Samuel. So we can look at David's life and we can see. See, David's lived experience in some ways measured up. So it, David wrote so many of our psalms. If you read through psalms, right, there's 150 of them. And David wrote a good chunk of them. And you would, as you read through them, you would read phrases like this. Psalm 3.8, salvation belongs to the Lord. You think David was pondering God's ways? Yes. Uh, the whole earth is the Lord's. Psalm 24, 1. That God created everything. David's reminding us. He's pondering his ways. God is a righteous judge. Psalm 7, 6. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 34, 18. David knew what God was like, pondered his character, pondered his ways, and sung about it. So many of the Psalms weren't just poems, they were actually songs. So David's aspirational goal of singing about the Lord, of thinking of who he was, when we look at his life, we would say, actually, I think David got there. I think David was the kind of man who measured up to this goal. So he, we can check one box, 
he, I guess he was the kind of guy who thought of God. Look at that next question, though. It, is, was he far from evil? Right? Because that's, that's verse 4. That's what he says. I, I wouldn't even recognize it. A, a depraved heart would be far from me. Well, there are stories in, in his life that I think show that. Probably the best example is the time he spared Saul's life twice. So two different times David had the opportunity to kill Saul and chose not to. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, the way that kingship worked in Israel is Samuel was a prophet of God. He went and he anointed King Saul, or Saul at that point, and he became king. Saul reigned for 40 years. But seven or so years into Saul's reign, God speaks to Samuel and says, Saul's no longer the plan. The new plan is David. I need you to anoint him. And Samuel goes and anoints him. And then the rest of Saul's kingship was him ruling and him trying to kill David. So he was not a good dude. He kept trying to kill David. And David had two distinct opportunities to kill Saul and avoid death. And most of us would probably do that, I think, right? If someone's trying to kill you, self-preservation kicks in and you do what you got to do. But David wants nothing, or he doesn't want evil in his life. A depraved heart is far from him. So two different occasions, once when Saul is using the bathroom, which is kind of a weird time to kill someone, I guess, uh, and then one time when Saul's sleeping, David is near him, people encourage him to kill Saul, and David says, no, I can never do that. I'm not going to strike the Lord's king. So David is the kind of man who keeps a perverse heart from him. He is the kind of man who knows nothing of evil. So verse 1 and 2, verse 4, David measures up. He's the kind of guy that he was hoping he would be. But if you know David's story, you know that it is not all good. There were some profound failures in his life. The biggest one probably being adultery. David stole another man's wife, and not just another man's wife, one of his soldiers, one of his bodyguards, actually. David was in his house one day. This story is told in 2 Samuel 11, and he looks down from the roof and sees a beautiful woman and says, I'm going to shoot my shot. And his servant tells him, uh, that chick is married to that guy who's actually your bodyguard. And David says, I said I'm going to shoot my shot, so I'm going to shoot my shot, and takes her and sleeps with her and then sends her away. A horrible story of tremendous sexual immorality on his part. As, as we examine this, which I think shows David, in fact, had a perverse heart, that David, in fact, knew lots about evil, as we look at this story that what didn't just end in adultery, it ended with him killing this woman's husband so he could take her to be his own wife. As we look at that story, I think we're, we, we face the question, uh, how did this happen how did David fail? He was doing so well. He pondered who God was. He sang of who God was. He kept himself from evil and not murdering Saul on at least two occasions. He was a good dude. How did he mess up so badly? And you could give a variety of reasons. If you read through that story in 2 Samuel 11, you could probably talk about laziness. David should have been with the army, but he wasn't. He chose to chill at home and left himself tremendously vulnerable. Uh, we could talk about opportunity, right? There was no one else around. The woman was alone. He was alone. So he had an, it's a crime of, of passion, a crime of opportunity. 
Uh, we could talk about rejecting wise counsel. David didn't do this in ignorance. Someone told him, this woman's spoken for. Like, this is someone else's wife. And not just someone else's wife, someone that you know. David rejected wise counsel. Uh, we could talk about David's selfishness, where a moment of pleasure was more important than a man who guarded his life, than a friendship, than the sanctity of marriage, than honoring God's law. We could list a variety of things, but I think when you read the story, the one that sticks out the most is David's eyes, what David saw. 2 Samuel eleven two, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. He sees this woman. He looks on her. And I think we see a, an enacted moment of what he talks about in Psalm 101, verse 3. He looked on worthless things. Psalm 101, verse 3. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. And I want to quickly clarify, I don't think the worthless thing is Bathsheba. I think the worthless thing is the idea, the actual adultery. David looked on this woman and thought to himself, I can have her. Why shouldn't I have her? I'm a king. I deserve it. David, you see, was, he was being affected by the stories around him, by the things he was seeing. Uh, ancient kings had massive harems. Ancient kings had all kinds of wives. If an ancient king wanted your wife and you didn't give her up, he would just kill you because he could do that. And David's like, look at all that these guys get away with and all these guys get away with and all these guys get away with. I'm not that wicked. I'm just going to do it once. I see my opportunity. It'll be fine. No one will ever know. David, by his seeing, was led into a horrible, horrible mistake. And I think from here we can move into our present day. I think the Bible actually gives us some principles for how we should think about what we see in the world. So I want to read you a, a passage from Matthew 6. The idea here is that what we see matters. The things that you view, the stories that you take in through your eyes, they impact you. They shape you. They teach you ideas. What we see matters. Matthew 6, verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? You might have read through this passage, like doing a, a Bible reading plan or you know, like in a sermon series, and I always struggled with it. I'm like, I don't really understand what Jesus is trying to say. But the image is pretty clear. If the eye is the lamp, if that lamp gives light, your body's lit. If that lamp is out, your body's dark. What, what Jesus is teaching is the things you take in actually shape what you value. The very next verse is about possessions. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus is teaching on possessions where he says, you can't serve God in money. You love one thing or you love the other. The things that you take in through your eyes change what you love. The stories actually change your heart. So what we see matters, but related to that is how we think of what we see matters even more. So Philippians 4, 8 Finally, brothers, or we would say brothers and sisters, 
whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's not just the seeing that matters. It's how we think of the things that we see. And I think as, as we're going to apply this to entertainment, and I want to show you how often we don't think super well of the things we take in. So I'm gonna share with you like the typical way, the typical framework for how we think of entertainment. I think typically we use three categories. We say there's good entertainment, there's bad entertainment, and these are like super narrow. And then there's a huge chunk in the middle that is uh, not sure. I hope it's okay, I don't know. I'll find out one day, I guess. I, I think when we say good, we mean like the chosen. Passion of the Christ, right? If, it, if it's Jesus, it's good. And when we think bad, we think like stuff that's like super crass, super raunchy, sexually explicit, those kinds of things. So like sausage party, right? Like, right? I, I, if you watched it, I hope you agree. Yeah. Oh, my word. This sermon series is for you, young lady. Sausage party is bad. It is crude humor. It no sexual ethics, right? It's cheap laughs. Passion of the Christ is good. It's Jesus' story. Come on. It's the Easter story. Come on. Come on. Right? That's how we think. And then in the middle is everything else. I'm like, what about Netflix? All that's in the middle, bro. I, you know, it's not really Jesus stuff. It's not horrible. So it's just, it is what it is. You know, we watch it, whatever. It doesn't really affect me, you know? That's how we think. The problem with this framework is the way we define good and the way we define bad is crazy narrow. So for good, we'll say like Christian values and then the absence of bad. Like hopefully not, not Christian values, which are like a double negative definition is probably not a good definition. So Christian values, not, not Christian values, and maybe like respectability. Like if I can talk about the show, if I can tell my friends that I watch it, uh, if I can tell, you know, Pastor Freddie that I watch it, it's probably good. Right? That's what we think. And for bad stuff, we would say, well... If it is like missing Christian values or attacking Christian values, um, or if I'd be embarrassed, like if I don't want people to know, where we're like, I would never watch that show. But you're like, actually, I totally do. Or you're like, I I've never even heard of it. And you're like, well, it's actually in your viewing history. So you definitely have seen the show. Right? There, that's the bad stuff. Good stuff is the Christian stuff. The problem with this definition is it, they're super narrow. So I, I, we're just going to walk through. Some examples from our NYA people. If you're on the, the IG, we put a poll out this week, and we asked, what are shows or movies that you loved? And you guys participated. Thank you. So we're going to practice this together. We're going to use the traditional framework for understanding entertainment. So this is an interactive activity. Give me a thumbs up. Can everyone do it? Thumbs up. That's right. So a thumbs up means I would put this in the good category. A thumbs down is I would put this in the bad category. You do one of these, not sure, not sure. I, all, some of you are already doing this right now. You don't know. You have no idea what you're doing with your life. For the rest of you. Sorry, that was personal. My bad. I didn't mean it, JMO. All right. For the rest of you, I'm just going to walk through some. All right. Rings of power. Yeah, probably, right? We would say good, right? It, it's loosely based on J.R. Tolkien. J.R. Tolkien was a Christian. Lord of the Rings has Christian values. Bro, that checks the Christian value box. Ring of power. All right, all right. 
House of the Dragon. House of the Dragon. I see a lot of uncertainty. Well, this was a little bit tricky where you're like, wow, the story's pretty sick, but uh, it's part of a series that, I mean, it does have some questionable scenes, but I kind of do this when the scenes come on. So, I mean, I would say I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. Definitely not Christian, but like, I don't think it's wicked, bro. Probably not sure. That's what I'm seeing. I'm not seeing a lot of thumbs. Stranger Things. Oh, okay. I have some down. I have some up. All right, all right. There's a lot of nod participation, so some of you need to figure it out. Okay. It seems like we're mixed. We're mixed. All right, so it sounds like we don't know. We'll figure it out. Uh, the Chosen. The, the Chosen. That's right. The story of Jesus, we would say, is good, yes? Yes, thank God. My word. All right, Andor. Andor, right? Star Wars breakoff. I'm seeing some thumbs. I'm seeing unsure. All right, I'm not asking if you like it or dislike it. I'm asking, is it morally good or morally bad? Okay, a lot of not sure. Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, of course you love it. Is it morally good? Okay, I'm going to say not sure. But... All right, there's a lot of you who like discernment. We're going to talk about that. All right. Okay, okay, okay. We're good here. So the reason that we work through that is because I want you to see that these categories are insufficient. Most of the shows I listed, I, I don't think you could really say are bad. But I wouldn't say they're good either, except for The Chosen. But one show is good. But apparently out of everything. And it's not even on Netflix. So you're like, how good can it be? Right? So... This, this paradigm, it doesn't actually work. You, we don't actually use it to think through what we view. And I just told you that the Bible teaches us that what we view matters and how we think of what we view matters even more. So the way we're thinking right now has got to change. It's not working. So I want to give you a new paradigm. So I want to remind you, the reason that we're doing this is because you cannot outrun your heart. The stories that you take in are shaping you. They are shaping the way you think. They are shaping the things that you believe far more than you know. So you can't outrun your heart. So David has an aspirational goal in Psalm 101, right? Verse 3, I will set nothing worthless before my eyes. We define worthless as immoral things. Not people, but ideas. Immoral ideas. So if we're going to avoid immoral ideas, I think there are two steps, two action steps that help us engage with the entertainment that we're consuming. The first is that we must see the greatest story. If we are saying that stories shape us, if we're saying the things that we view, the things that we take in impact our beliefs, then there is a particular story that we want to make sure we are consuming. The gospel. The idea that there is a God, not multiple gods, not an impersonal force, but a God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and this God made everything. God made a good world. And humanity said, I appreciate you making it, I'm going to do my own thing here. So people like you and me do our own thing. So God made a world, people do their own thing, and 
Because God is a righteous judge, like Psalm 24 says, he's got to do something about it. But God is not just a righteous judge, he's also a merciful God, a steadfast, loving God. And God steps into the world and says, actually, y'all deserve punishment because you rebelled against me, you do your own thing, even though I've given you instructions for life, I'm going to send Jesus. And Jesus comes and lives a perfect life of obeying God and everything he ever commanded, and then because Jesus obeyed, all of us, by faith, can get the reward Jesus earned, eternal life, forever with God. Right? So this story, this is a good story. This story shapes us if you know it, if you believe it, if you hear it often. You hear a lot of other stories every single day. And every story you hear shapes you. So the very first step to guarding our eyes, to setting nothing worthless, no immoral things before our eyes, is that we need to see the greatest story. And the second is that we, need, we must use discernment in what our eyes consume. So I, I want to give you a, a little framework for thinking through it. Uh, I think people typically have three responses. So we walk through something like this where you're like, most stuff is not good, most stuff is not bad, so it's just kind of in the middle. There are some people that react to that and say, okay, Freddie, I'm going to set nothing worthless before my eyes. I am a seal, like not the animal or the singer, but the, like, a plug, right? Imagine a bathtub, the thing that goes in the drain so that water can't get through, that, that kind of seal. I'm a seal to all kinds of entertainment. If it's not good, I'm not taking it in, bro. And you're like, okay, cool, praise God. Uh, the problem is you're basically not going to watch anything ever. If, you're, if your idea is my response, the way, the steps that I'm going to take to set nothing worthless before my eyes is to be a seal against anything that could be bad, you basically can't watch anything because nothing is neutral. They're stories that are teaching you something, and their messages are not explicitly Christian. So I don't think seal is a, is a good response. Uh, there are people who are sponges. They're like, okay. Super conservative Christians, fundamentalists do that, but like, I'm out here trying to live life, and I want to interact with the culture, I'm not scared, you know what I'm saying? So, uh, I'm all in. I'll watch anything, you know? I just look away for the bad spots. And those people function as sponges. And they consume everything, but inevitably, uh, you start to actually forget what story you most believe. You start to forget what you believe, and you believe whatever it is that you're watching. A seal keeps you away from everything. A sponge turns you into whatever it is that these stories are selling. So both of these, I think, are not great responses. The last one is to be a sieve or colander. But sieve rhymes more than colander, so I said sieve. Right, that's those things to strain vegetables, yes? Nod with me if you know what it is. Yeah, I was like, do you guys not know what that is? Have you never eaten food? My word. <laughs> White people love vegetables, right? So you like, you wash the greens and then you like cook them, right? So you would use a sieve to strain the water out. Anyways, <laughs> ethnic jokes aside, <laughs> what I'm saying is that when, when we consume entertainment, when we view TV shows or movies, we need to be a sieve. Well, how do I do that, Freddie? That's a cool image, but I, I don't know. I think the way that we do that is we ask one question. What in this movie or TV show aligns with God's word? That's it. That's all you have to do. 
what in this movie or TV show aligns with God's word. I think we see this example in 1 Timothy 4, 4 to 5. This is what it says. Everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Paul's making some statements about what God has made. God made a good world. Amen. I believe that. But you're like, well, God didn't make the TV show, though. True. But he made your eyeballs. And he made the dude who made the TV show. So the, the problem isn't the TV show. The problem is that there are messages in the TV show. There are messages in the movie that we don't like. But it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If I'm asking that question, what in this TV show or movie aligns with God's word, I can actually find something good in basically anything. And I can recognize the bad in basically everything. I, I want to show you what this looks like in real life. I, my, my hope is that you would walk out of here today and you would learn to ask that question. When I watch TV, some of you are going to go home and watch TV tonight. And when you do that, you would ask the question, what in this movie or TV show aligns with God's word? We're going to go after Modern Family because everyone has seen Modern Family. So most people have seen Modern Family. I appreciate your uh, accuracy. All right, Modern Family. The, sh the premise of the show is pretty simple. It is a family in modern times. They live in Los Angeles. It's a super wealthy guy couple of his kids and the people that they marry and the kids that they raise and, or his grandkids, them doing life together. So if you've watched Modern Family in the like 17 seasons and a thousand awards that they won, you would learn a few things. I think you would learn that you ought to love your family no matter what. That's part of the story. That's something that gets communicated constantly. Uh, the main character, his name is Jay Pritchett. He has two kids, Mitchell and Claire, and Mitchell and Claire fight each other all the time. They fight dad all the time, but at the end of the day, they love each other, and they'll do anything for each other. And the lesson there is that you love your family no matter what. There are profound differences between these three characters, but you love your family no matter what. If I ask that question, what in this movie or TV show aligns with God's word, that one checks the box, actually. 1 Timothy 5.8 says that those who do not provide for their household, and provision is broader than just like money. It's like emotional support, spiritual support, friendship. If you do not provide that for your household, for the family unit that you are part of, according to 1 Timothy 5.8, you are worse than an unbeliever and have denied the faith. Modern family didn't come up with that idea. God did. You love your family no matter what. So I'm like, as I watch that show, I'm like, that message aligns with God's word. As you watch the show, you would learn that material possessions do not bring lasting joy. Jay Pritchett is phenomenally wealthy. But it's not his, like, huge house or his fancy car that brings him joy. It inevitably, in basically every episode, the thing that brings him joy is his family. When he's spending time with his kids or his grandkids or when he sees them reconcile. And we learn that it's people. People are what bring joy. And again, surprise, surprise, that aligns with God's word. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. These things is the material stuff of life. What you eat, what you drink, where you live. What Jesus is teaching in Matthew 6 
is don't worry about the material stuff. Worry about people, and you'll have everything. Modern family didn't come up with that. God did. That aligns with God's word. So there are some lessons in this show that I think are good. There are also some lessons in the show that I think are bad, that do not align with God's word. If you watch Modern Family, I think you would come away with the lesson that families can look like anything. That's the premise for the show. It is a modern family. The traditional family, that's outdated. The modern family is this. It is uh, a very wealthy old man with a trophy wife who's half his age. It is a traditional family and a mom and a dad, and then a non-traditional family in his son who is married to another man. And much of the show is the family conflict, relational conflict, expectation conflict between these people and then the struggles they have in, in raising families because his, the, his son and his son-in-law can't have babies. It is a biological reality that two men cannot produce a child. Modern family has redefined family as basically anything that you want. As long as the people want to be there, that's a family unit. That does not align with God's word. What God's word teaches in places like Ephesians 5 is that marriage is a husband and a wife. And that as a husband and wife join in marriage and become a new family unit, in some way that points to the relationship that Christ has to the church. A relationship of mutual love, of distinction, of difference, but sameness. So this lesson does not align with God's word. If you watch Modern Family, I think you would also learn that the ends justify the means in communication. Basically every episode is one character miscommunicating with another character because they are not willing to be honest. Or they're not willing to challenge someone on something that they disagree with or dislike. And then it's funny, I guess, to see people go through the same conflicts over and over again. Habitual dishonesty and pride in speech is just the status quo in the modern family. That does not align with God's word. Colossians 3.9 tells us, do not lie to one another. Galatians 5.19 says, if you devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed. The sarcasm, the anger, the sniping that you see in modern family does not align with God's word. In this show, I think we see things that do align. We see good things. And we see things that do not align. We see bad things. And the lesson is that in basically everything you watch, every story that you consume, there will be good things and there will be bad things. I want you to ask the question, every time you watch TV, every time you watch a movie, does what I'm watching align with God's word? Where does it align with God's word? Maybe it doesn't align with God's word. Where does it not align with God's word? The, the stories that we take in, primarily through visual in our world today, right? We watch so much TV. We watch so many movies. You can stream Netflix on your phone, your tablet, your laptop, on your television. We watch so much television. And our hearts are much more shaped than we realize by these stories. These stories have ideas, they have truths that sneak past our defenses and change the way that we think. The entertainment that we consume shapes us because you cannot outrun your heart. My hope is as we work through this series, 
you learn to use discernment in the things that you see, in the things that you hear, and in the things that you do, because you cannot outrun your heart. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to invite the worship team up to lead us in some song. Father God, thank you for your word. Lord, I'm reminded in this passage of the challenges we face, of setting nothing worthless before our eyes, uh, because we live in a world that is so confused. There are so many different ideas about what is the good life, what leads to human flourishing. Everyone has a different definition. Everyone has a different goal. Our hope is, Lord, that as we study your word, that we would learn what it is that we need to do so that we can live an abundant life as you promised. So I pray that every single person here, Father, that you would give them the ability, the wisdom uh, to be discerning in the things that they watch, that they would learn to, to check and to ask the question, how does what I'm watching align with God's word? We ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.